Well, good morning. My name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the pastor of uh, of Family Ministries here at Christ the King, and it's good to be with you all this morning sharing uh, this word that comes from Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. And for those of you all who kind of know where this passage is heading, um, you may know that there's, there's a couple of challenging parts in this passage, but a lot of what we are going to focus on this morning is about work and why we work. And so that's actually the main question uh, that I titled this sermon with, which is the why of work. What is it about our work that has any sort of significance or purpose? Is there any significance or purpose to it? And so as I was preparing uh, to preach this Sunday, I was telling folks about my sermon and, and some, of the, some of people introduced me to a few different businesses that I ought to take a look at, one of which was called WeWork. I had never heard of WeWork until, uh, until this week, so I had to kind of catch up. I was living a bit under a rock. Um, uh, and WeWork is a company that was essentially, for those of you all who are like me and don't know, uh, it was, it was, it's essentially an office uh, office sharing retail space. Um, that's their business model, for lack of a better term. But they believed that they had a mission, uh, and they believed that they could be marketed as something that was completely brand new. They believed that they were a movement of what they called the we, right? The collective that we live in this I generation, the iPhone, uh, uh, the you know, so on with with I whatever. Um, that we live in an individualistic world, but that as we come together, as we get people working together. Perhaps that creates more creativity and better workplace. And so they began to preach this gospel of the collective we. And as they began to preach that version of the gospel, more and more people bought in to the point that it became incredibly popular and massively overinflated in its value. Uh, Investors only paid attention to the fact that people liked it and not to the fact that its business model was still inherently renting out shared office space. So even though it had this massive rise, it ultimately had this massive fall from grace as well. So why do I bring this up as an example? Well, economists and business educators have recognized that we're in this kind of shifting global uh, American economy in particular, but global economy as well. The Business Roundtable, which is a lobbying group uh, for some of the largest corporations in America, wrote in a memo in 2019 that the purpose of business is no longer to maximize profits, but rather to, to maximize this sort of vague sense of, of goodness, to look out for employees and partners and maybe even the world itself. It, it, it's not enough for today's companies to be mere companies. They need to be value-driven movements. And that's what WeWork was, and that's what so many other companies are that you pay attention to in commercials, particularly during the Olympics. You all may have seen a lot of these, right? They, they've, recognized, they've recognized what the gospel and what the Bible has always taught, that work is endowed with meaning and purpose. And if we find purposelessness in our work, it's disheartening. Or vice versa, the more it is endowed with meaning and purpose, the better it is. And ultimately, maybe even the more profitable, right? So you see, you'll see uh, businesses like Yo Play Yogurt, 
where they weren't merely advertising yogurt anymore. They had a campaign called Mom On. It was meant to tackle the issue of mom shaming uh, that, that many of us have. So you go on and you mom the way you mom and there's no shaming about it and maybe buy some yogurt too, right? Or perhaps you've seen the Facebook ads during COVID, which have basically declared themselves to be uh, the saviors of the world, that in our disconnectedness, there was no way that we could live any sort of loving, great life without Facebook connecting us in this amazing way. Right? As, as humans, we want to understand the purpose of our work, and so companies are trying to tell us that at times, too. But is it okay, is it right, is it good for us to understand what the purpose is of work and does God actually care about it? So that's the question I want us to ask as we read here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. If you turn to your black Bibles, which are now uh, in your chairs, it's on page 979, uh, or you can read along with me on the screen. This is Paul writing, and he says this. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Our Father and our God, we do thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, that as we consider it this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get into more of kind of our application for this passage, I want to deal with kind of the elephant in this passage. And that is, you maybe noticed it, you may have missed it because we read the English Standard Version, which translates the first verse or the first word of this passage as bondservant. Well, the Greek word for this is doulos, which based on the context can mean servant or it can mean slave. And so I want for us to focus real quickly on some aspects of what this passage is teaching us about, uh, about the issue of slavery, particularly as we compare it to American slavery uh, within our own historical context. So I wanna say three things about this. First, that American slavery and, and Roman slavery or bond servants as is listed here Yes, they are different, but still Roman slavery was quite brutal. American slavery is called chattel slavery. It's enslaving and owning the individual in, its, in their totality, and not only the individual, but also their offspring. Right, so Roman slavery was, was an enslavement of sorts. There was still an enslavement that was going on, but oftentimes you were able to work out of your own debts and more often than not, your children were born into freedom. Also, some Roman slaves had the ability to accumulate incredible wealth, uh, maybe even wealthier than the middle class of most Roman uh, citizens, which is also one of the other distinguishing features between American uh, and Roman slavery. Yet, 
Roman slavery was still brutal. In some capacities, we might could see it more as like a modern day sweatshop type situation where it's tied, you're tied to your employer who's probably treating you poorly based on the economic situation that you find yourself and that you're trying to work your way out of. So the second thing I want to say is this, that the Bible does not affirm slavery by its acknowledging it here. Okay, in the history of the United States, people have pointed to this passage and other similar ones in the New Testament to say that the Bible affirms and supports slavery. Right, they'll say, well, well see, he, he, Paul tells the, the slaves to obey their masters, and to, and to obey means to, to not seek to abolish slavery. Well, as is often the case to, to use uh, Scripture in that way, to use kind of one small verse to make it say exactly what you want, is something that many of us do, uh, no matter what the, what the particular issue is. We try to use that fine-tooth comb to make the Bible say exactly what fits our particular agenda. And that's what's, what's happening there when someone says that. Though the Bible tells Christian slaves to obey, it does so in a particular context at a particular time. Paul is writing to the people of Ephesus, a people that would have had even more slaves than many of the other cities and in, in areas in Rome. Rome would have had the most slaves, probably Corinth second. Many think Ephesus would have been third, with about one-third of the population having been Roman slaves. So Paul is writing to these, these new Christians, these new Christians in Ephesus, Christian slaves and Christian masters to tell them that they've now submitted their lives to Christ. And there's this new ethic that they're supposed to live by. He isn't writing the Roman emperor to write a treatise on whether or not slavery should be abolished. That's not the purpose of this particular letter. He's writing to a people that live in a culture where slavery is assumed. And he's writing to a people where, where men pretty much have all of the power and women and children pretty much have none, which is the context of most of what we've been reading in Ephesians up to this point. Right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, so on and so forth. That's the context of this passage. And I want to say this for the third thing, that the kingdom of God is bringing a new humanity so within this context, what is the new humanity supposed to do or supposed to be? Prior to any of the codes of conduct, right, of husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, all the way through this particular passage, these, the church in Ephesus was given one particular command, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul is saying that, yes, slavery exists in your world, but Christian slaves and Christian masters should submit themselves to one another in such a way that there is now no longer a distinguishing feature between master and slave. There's no longer any distinguishing feature between male and female because we are so mutually submissive and loving to one another. So, yes, Paul acknowledges slavery, but in no way is he supporting it. That's not the point of this letter. Maybe by way of illustration, we could think of it this way. How many of y'all have read the book, The Poisonwood Bible? Maybe a few of y'all. Um, the Poisonwood Bible is a, is, a, is a book, a novel about a Christian missionary and, and their family as they went to go to the Belgian Congo in the 1950s and 1960s. 
So almost immediately, the missionary uh, named Nathan Price begins to preach sermons all about and to call out the polygamy that he sees that's rampant in that particular area. Right? He's All of a sudden, he's shocked at, the, at their blatant disregard for what he's teaching them, the biblical truths that he's teaching him. Why don't they care about the same things that he cares about? So instead of making inroads into the community, he's actually beginning to make enemies, and they're putting up a stiff arm uh, toward him and toward the gospel. So there's another missionary who's there who's been serving for about six years, who's having a conversation with, uh, with Mrs. Price, with his wife, about all of the, the, the yes, it's sad that they haven't made any inroads into, into the issue of polygamy, but he, he says this that completely changes her perspective. It says, but each of those wives has profited from the teachings of Jesus. I can tell you the village chief and I spent many afternoons with a calabash of palm wine between us debating the merits of treating a wife kindly. In my six years here, I saw the practice of wife beating fall into great disfavor. And all of a sudden, secret little altars to chief Jesus appeared in most every kitchen as a result. You see, he doesn't begin by telling them uh, that marriage is between one man and one woman and demands that they need to obey this immediately. No, instead, he begins by teaching them to not beat their wives. And as a result, the wives and the families begin to think, well, this is a pretty good gospel. And they start worshiping Jesus as a result. Similarly, Paul isn't writing about all of the counsel of God as it relates to the issue of slavery, demanding that the people of Ephesus submit to it right here and right now. He begins by teaching them to love one another and to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I hope that makes sense. If y'all if if have questions about this, I'm more than available to talk more. As, uh, I don't want to cheapen this, but I do want to go on to what our context is. We don't live in a world where slavery exists in the same way as it does here, nor uh, like it did 200 years ago. But we still do live in a world where there's slavery. And if y'all want to know more about that and how to get involved with, uh, with combating that, I would love to, to urge you to go um, talk to Mary Elizabeth Hurd or Jaime and others who, who can connect you to the different mission partners that we have uh, here in Houston to fight against that very thing. Uh, you probably saw Mary Elizabeth's uh, email address listed in, in the email this past week. So hopefully all of you will email her uh, before this, this sermon is over. But I want to focus this morning on the fact that this, this passage is about the relationship between employer and employee. It's about the working relationship that goes on. And I want to focus on two particular things. First, that work is meaningful. And second, that the way we work matters. So first, all work is meaningful. Paul begins this section by directly talking to Christian slaves. He begins with the lowest on the totem pole. And Paul is concerned to tell them to obey all tasks that are given to them, provided that those tasks do not violate the law of God. Because as you obey, whatever the task, you are actually doing God's will. Certainly there were some slaves who got like really exciting tasks to do and maybe there were some others who had Christian masters who told them that their job was now to go and talk about Jesus to others. But 
the exciting will of God leveled obedience that they are doing here is probably not that awesome. It's probably very mundane tasks that is still the will of God. Paul is talking about things like cleaning. Right? That, that, that not, it, it, the cleaning isn't, isn't some uh, doing the will of God because of some massive significance to it, but because cleaning brings order to God's good created world. He's talking about counting the harvest, not because the better you count the harvest and the more food you have, and then you can go out and do the real Christian work um, of sharing the gospel with others. No, it's, it's good work, and it's the will of God because it's good stewardship over the world that God created. The work itself was meaningful because this is the way God created us to be. Y'all know that in Genesis 3, before the, or prior to Genesis 3, in the fall of Adam and Eve, they worked. They worked when, when there was no sin. They worked when there was no curse. Work is actually good. It is God-honoring. Does that feel wrong for me to say that? I think oftentimes we think it does because it feels like a drudgery at times to go and do work. So does it feel strange to say that God actually cares about your work or that, that work can be a form of worship? Your work that may be as mundane as cleaning the dishes or sending out memos or changing diapers, right? Your work that may be looking at spreadsheets or, or TPS reports, right? Um, your work doesn't only count to God if you are in an altruistic profession or if you're in a nonprofit or if you're in ministry. Your work counts to God because you are at work and that's how he created you to be. Your work matters if you answer the phones, if you short the market, or if you carry the mail. John Stott writes this in his book, God's New Society. He says it's possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus were going to eat it, or to spring clean the house as if Jesus were going to be the honored guest. It's possible for teachers to educate children for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books and secretaries to type letters, as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. All work matters to God because all work that we do is in this world, a world that he called us to steward and a world that Christ himself is renewing. So all work is done as if we're serving Jesus. It says even in Matthew 25 that as we feed someone or as we give water to someone who is thirsty, we are doing and serving Jesus Christ himself. So this is true for all things that are done in this world because we are serving Jesus. He is the king. So as you mop the floors, you are mopping the floors of the king. As you account for money, you are accounting the resources of the king. As you study in school, you are learning about the world that is ruled by our king. And even more than that, the good work that we do is somehow actually going to bring a reward, as this passage says. Even if it isn't about bringing a conversion or saving a life, somehow the good work that we do is going 
to be given back to us, it says. Because when we serve and care for others in this world as he created us to do, then we are doing the very will of God, no matter what that task is. So take heart and know that no matter what your daily tasks are, they matter to God. But that also means that we can begin to take pride in our work. We can do good work. When I was uh, in high school, I was a really bad English student, which is ironic that I married a literature professor. Um, But I was a really bad English student, partly because at that time I knew I wanted to be in ministry full time. And so I just used all of my writing assignments to talk about my faith. And then if it came to reading or if it came to a vocab quiz, I just kind of mailed it in and didn't, didn't do well. Um, but my English teacher uh, that particular year happened to be a long-term sub who was a member of Christ the King. Her name was Jennifer Lang. Some of y'all may know her. Um, uh, she was my English teacher my sophomore year. And she'd read enough of my papers to know that, uh, that, that I was a Christian and she was her, a Christian. And so one day after class, she pulled me aside uh, and was, it was going to be both kind of a, a giddy up and, a, and, and kind of a, a spurring me on to actually do good works. And so she, she thanked me for writing about my faith and wanted to connect with me on that level. But she said, you know, a Christian isn't only one who wants to talk about their faith all the time. A Christian is somebody who wants to do good work because God has enabled them to do that very good work. So at the time, I really blew off that advice. I didn't listen to it at all. It took a long time for me to begin to listen to what she had to say. Uh, It's that that kind of slow-burning advice that you keep coming back to and keeps gnawing at you over time. So if y'all do know her, let her know that I have now taken it quite to heart um, about 20 years later. But the longer I've lived, the more I go back to that advice and, and recognize that even a vocabulary quiz is something that I should have worked hard in. Because as I learn new words, I'm learning more about the world that God created and about the gift of language that God has given to us. Right? So, so study well if that's your job. Parent well if that's your job. Give others good tasks to do if you're a boss and that's your job. Whatever it is, do it unto the Lord. Well, what about, what about work that is evil? Right, are we supposed to obey all commands from our bosses? Well, the passage's answer to that very question is emphatically no. Right? We, we are to obey our fleshly masters. Literally, that's what the passage has to, to call them, earthly masters. It's, it's fleshly masters. We are to obey them as we obey our heavenly masters. As we obey our heavenly Father, as we obey Christ. So our obedience to our bosses is subordinate to our our obedience to Christ. Paul is saying that if we're told to do something by our bosses that the Bible or that Christ would condemn, then we are to disobey our fleshly bosses because we need to obey our heavenly boss. The Bible gives us a lot of different examples of of people doing this very thing. Think back into the Old Testament of Daniel where he was commanded to pray to the king uh, of Babylon and he refused to do so. Hopefully we aren't thrown into a, a lion's den ourselves, but there is a tension that we can feel when we have to disobey that way. When we disobey our bosses, there are real world consequences, maybe as small as like, 
uh, that relational tension that you begin to feel as you go back into the workplace. Or maybe it's as big as potentially losing your job. But, that real, but, but the work-based tension that we feel is to be expected because not only do we live in a sinful and broken world, we work in one too. Right? Where, where things that we do, even if they're tedious, are things that are meant to be done unto the Lord. Or where things where we refuse to do are done unto obedience to our Lord as well. So we can do this because God cares about all of our work. The relational tension or job loss we may fear is no surprise to him at all because ultimately he cares about the way that we do and accomplish our work, which is our second point. The way that we work matters. Paul reminds both slaves and masters that they're essentially no different from one another because they both have the same Lord to whose authority they must both submit and God doesn't show partiality between either worker. It's not, not favors the boss, doesn't favor the employee. No, he isn't going to be more willing to gloss past the sins of the master because the master is more important. And he isn't willing to show partiality to the servant since the servant is maybe more oppressed. No, God shows no partiality between them. But he expects and he desires for all Christians who work to submit to him. And so as they do so, they're to conduct themselves and to work as he would have them to work, as he would have us to work. So first, let's look at what God demands or requires of the employee, of the servant. <clears throat> the employee needs to be careful not to fall into the very common sinful situation of mailing it in, of barely getting by. The passage calls it eye service. I love that. Just serving the eyes of your boss or of your master, doing just good enough to get by or just enough to make sure that he isn't mad at you, but ultimately slacking off at all other times. Right, to act that way is to only care as if you have a job or to only care what your boss thinks about you, but to slack off at all other times is to forget that our Heavenly Father sees at all times. And he cannot be cheated. So we're to work with diligence, whether the boss is around or not, because God is always around. Second, let's look at what God wants from the master or from the boss. The employer needs to be careful with how they treat the employee. Right? You're not to motivate by threats. You're to serve them well. And you're to serve them according to the ways and the ethics of the kingdom. Thus, the boss should treat his employees as he or she wants to be treated. So if you want respect, treat them with respect. Right? If you want them to be honest, you need to be honest. There's a, a very cynical meme that's going around the internet. Uh, I, I really enjoy looking at memes because I think they're actually a very good cultural study about what people think uh, in this world. So uh, this is a particular meme. It's a picture of a beautiful beach house. And on this picture are these words, cynically written. It says, if you work hard, if you put in the hours and you do this every day, then your boss can live here. Right? Um, that's the prevalent view of what many people in our society view about their bosses. May that never be so of the Christian boss. 
We do not use our employees for our own personal gain, but we seek their welfare as we pursue our own. We remember that we are all under authority, under the authority of Christ. So let me conclude with this. As we work and as we live, we need to go back to the section that Paul began, this whole household codes of of Ephesians 5 and 6. If you were to turn to Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We are to walk in love and to be like God, but we don't do so out of our own power or out of our own attempts to maybe earn God's favor by working as hard as we can or as best as we can. No, your good work is not good enough to earn God's favor. Your your good bossing, if that were a word, is not good enough to be God's favor, to earn God's favor. No, our, our ability and our desire to work well and to love others well cannot come from us comes from him out of his love for us because when we were still skimping on our work Christ died for us when we were still mistreating and threatening others Christ died for us or when we believed ourselves to be the boss or the Lord of our own worlds Jesus Christ the Lord of the world died for you and for me He gave himself up for us, that though we deserve death and we deserve to be cast away from him, he came near to us and he served us. Though we infect this world with sin, Christ is renewing all things. So we work well to to treat others well because he has first done so for us. So the, the answer to the question that we began this whole sermon with of, of why work what is it that, we, that, that work is, 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 uh, is given a purpose for we work for this that Christ is making all things new and that he invites us to be a part of it let's pray our God and our Father we do thank you we thank you that you died for us in our sin Father that You invited us to come and to know you by your grace and that through your grace that we are to treat others with respect and with dignity. Lord, we know that we cannot do so in our own power, but by your grace and through your spirit, we pray that you would enable us to do so more and more, to become more like Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for him. We pray it in his name by the Holy Spirit. Amen.